0: This audio lecture is based entirely upon the casebook Sales and Leases, a problem based approach by Scott J. Burnham and Kristen Juris. The casebook is published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution, non commercial, share alike. 4.0 International. That means that the authors have allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format, and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit. Don't use the material for commercial purposes. And redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution, Non Commercial, Share Alike. International. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Contracts Lectures. In this third lecture, we'll be discussing the battle of the forms. In today's business world, buyers and sellers have developed standardized forms to use when offering to sell goods and when accepting an offer to buy goods. These forms typically have blank spaces to fill in for material terms, such as the type of good, quantity, price, and delivery date. These standardized forms also contain many paragraphs, even pages of fine print or boilerplate terms such as warranties, exclusions of warranties, payment terms, remedies, or limitations of remedies, choice of law, choice of forum, arbitration clauses, etc. UCC Section 2-207 was designed to resolve the issue of what terms govern when these forms contain terms that either contradict each other, that is, different Terms, Or when one form contains terms not addressed in the other form, that is, additional terms. Another fairly common situation today is an oral agreement, followed up by written confirmations. For example, a law student calls computer warehouse to order a new computer, specifying the model quantity and price. Computer Warehouse accepts the order over the phone. When Computer Warehouse ships the computer, it sends along a nine-page written confirmation of its acceptance that contains numerous terms, such as warranties and choice-of-law clauses, none of which were discussed when the contract was originally formed on the phone. UCC Section 2-207 provides the framework for determining whether the additional terms govern the transaction. As a first step, we'll look at Section 2-207-1 before the comma. As discussed in a previous lecture, formation of a contract at common law requires mirror acceptance of the terms offered. An acceptance cannot contradict terms contained in the original offer, nor add terms to those originally proposed. Such an acceptance becomes a counter-offer, which the original offeror is now free to accept or reject. The purpose of Section 2-207 is to allow, in some circumstances, a response to an offer. That adds or varies terms of the original offer, to nonetheless operate as an acceptance. Whereas under common law, it would be construed as a counteroffer. Section two-two hundred seven requires a communication that is either one a quote definite and seasonable expression of acceptance end quote. Or to a, quote, written confirmation, end quote, following an oral agreement. Let's start by analyzing what constitutes a definite and seasonable expression of acceptance. In determining whether there has been a definite and seasonable expression of acceptance, what factors should you look at? Look for words of acceptance. For example, if you say, we agree to enter into a contract upon the terms enclosed, or, we accept your offer upon the terms enclosed. Which presents a better case for arguing the response is a definite and seasonable expression of acceptance. Is using the word accept in a response to an offer conclusive. Second, look at whether a purported acceptance manifests assent by the offeree to the offeror's proposed material terms. In the previous example, did this express consent to the material terms? If in its response to an offer, the offeree does not manifest assent to the material terms proposed by the offeror, for example, by proposing a different price, quantity, type of good, delivery date, or something inconsistent with any other important term, then you have good grounds to argue that the response is not an acceptance, but a counteroffer. On the other hand, a response containing a contradictory term or adding non-material terms not discussed, should not preclude acceptance. To put it another way, Section 2-207 is concerned with reasonable expectations. Parties usually read the material terms in the acceptance to be sure they conform to the terms of the offer but they don't read all of the fine print. The intent of Section 2-207 is to allow formation of a contract, even if the fine print differs. Now let's look at the written confirmation portion of Section 2-207-1. Note first that the written confirmation must follow within a reasonable time. Section 1-205 tells us that reasonable depends on the nature, purpose, and circumstances of the action, so it will be determined on a case-by-case basis. Comment 1 gives two examples in which the written confirmation provision could apply. The first is a written confirmation following an agreement reached orally. The second is a written confirmation following an agreement reached by informal correspondence. In other words, key terms such as the description of the good, quantity, and purchase price are agreed to in an exchange of faxes. And then one or both of the parties follows up with its five-page standard purchase agreement that includes numerous other terms not discussed in the exchange of correspondence, such as warranties and choice-of-law clauses. Now moving to the second step, look for language sufficient to satisfy Section 2 207 after the comma. Let's assume that you have concluded that so far Section 2 207 applies because there exists either a definite and seasonable expression of acceptance of an offer or a written confirmation of an oral or informal agreement. Normally, either of these will operate as an acceptance even though they propose additional or different terms. But there is an exception found after the comma in section 2 One. Is the acceptance, quote, Expressly made conditional on assent to the additional or different terms. End quote. Language making an offeree's acceptance conditional upon assent to its proposed additional or different terms may not trigger the exception if that language is buried in fine print somewhere in its written acceptance form. In Dytom Inc. v. Penwalt Corp. Penwalt offered to sell commercial vacuum dryers to DITOM. DITOM's response expressed its consent to the material terms. However, DITOM's response also contained language in fine print on the back that DITOM's acceptance is expressly limited to DITOM's terms and conditions, unless each deviation is mutually recognized, therefore, in writing. The court found that in order to constitute a conditional acceptance, the offeree must explicitly communicate his or her unwillingness to proceed with the transaction unless the additional or different terms in its response are accepted by the offeror the court found that Daitom did not adequately bring its conditional acceptance to the attention of Penwalt, and thus the exception did not apply. If a party has used language sufficient to satisfy the language of exception after the comma in section 2-207-1, then there is no acceptance. If there is no acceptance, At this point, there is no contract. There are three possibilities as to what will happen next. 1. The parties will refuse to agree on terms. 2. The parties will agree on terms. Or 3. The parties will go ahead and ship the goods and pay for them, moving the parties into Section 2-207-3. Section 2-207.3, which was added in 1966, is intended to apply when the writings of the parties do not establish a contract, but they act as if they have reached an agreement. Recall that if acceptance is expressly made conditional on assent, the response is not an acceptance, but a counteroffer. If there is no acceptance, then there is no contract established by the writings. But a contract might nevertheless be established by conduct. In the case of Uniroyal, Inc. versus Chambers, Gasket & Manufacturing Company, the courts concluded that the writings exchanged between Chambers and Uniroyal did not create a contract. Because Uniroyal's acceptance of Chambers' offer to purchase goods was expressly conditioned on Chambers' assent to the new terms, and the record revealed no manifestation of Chambers' assent to those terms. Because Uniroyal shipped the goods ordered by Chambers, and Chambers accepted the shipment, the party's conduct was sufficient to establish a contract. In such a situation, Section 2 207 3 provides that the terms of the contract are those on which the writings agree, as supplemented by applicable code provisions. In other words, the additional or different terms are subject to a knockout rule. In the third step, determining the effect of different or additional terms. Now, let's back up. Assume that we have concluded that the requirements of Section 2 207 before the comma are satisfied, and there is not sufficient language to invoke the exception after the comma. We now know that an acceptance has occurred even though the acceptance proposes additional or different terms from those offered. The problem now is to find out which terms govern, those in the offer or those in the acceptance. Section 2 207 provides the framework for answering that question. Section 2 207 tells us what to do with additional terms, but does not mention different terms. However, comment 3 states that subsection 2 determines whether or not either additional or different terms will become part of the contract. With regard to additional terms, one set of rules applies to contracts between merchants, and another set of rules applies to contracts in which one or both parties are non merchants. Now, additional terms between merchants. Subsection 2 states that any additional terms are to be construed as proposals. Where both parties are merchants, a proposed additional term becomes a part of the agreement unless 1. The offer expressly limits acceptance to the terms of the offer. 2. The additional term materially alters the contract. Comment 4 explains that a term which would materially alter the contract is one that would result in surprise or hardship if incorporated into the contract. Comment 5 gives examples of terms that would not result in surprise. Or 3 the offeror gives notice of its objection to the additional terms, which can be done either at the time the contract is made by appropriate language in the offer, that is, limiting acceptance to the terms of the offer or otherwise making it clear that no additional terms will be considered part of the contract, or within a reasonable time after receipt of notice of the additional terms. If any one of these three possibilities occur, the terms of the offer control unless the offeree assents to the additional terms. Several courts have ruled that in contracts between merchants, it is presumed that any additional terms proposed by the offeree become a part of the agreement, and the offeror bears the burden of proof as to the existence of one of the exceptions. Now, additional terms not between merchants. Whereas UCC Section 2 seven two specifically states what happens to proposed additional terms as between merchants. It does not say what to do when either party to the agreement is a non-merchant. And different terms. Now, let's discuss what happens to different terms contained in the offeree's acceptance, if under Section 2 207 1, you have concluded that there is, in fact, an operative acceptance. Section 2 207 2, on its face, applies only to additional terms. What happens if the terms contained in the acceptance are different rather than additional? In recognition of the problems that have arisen in the interpretation and application of Section 2-207, it was entirely rewritten in Amended Article 2. The revised version provided, If one, conduct by both parties recognizes the existence of a contract, although their records do not otherwise establish a contract, two, a contract is formed by an offer and acceptance. Or, three, A contract form in any manner is confirmed by a record that contains terms additional to or different from those in the contract being confirmed. The terms of the contract subject to Section 2-202 are A. Terms that appear in the records of both parties. B. Terms, whether in a record or not, to which both parties agree, and C, terms supplied or incorporated under any provision of this Act. It is instructive to see how the drafters proposed to solve the problems created by the original version. As parties increasingly enter into transactions through the Internet, the importance of Section 2-207 is subsiding. Unless one of the parties has leverage, it may have to agree to the offered terms. And if there is negotiation, the parties will only have one document that constitutes the agreement. If one party has agreed to the other's non-negotiable terms in an Internet-based transaction... What basis is there for challenging those terms after the transaction has been concluded? Thanks, everybody. That's all I'd like to talk about in this lecture. Take care.